Well, welcome. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're here if we hadn't said that to you yet. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are really grateful to be able to be here. Like, just even being in this room is just a testament to God's faithfulness to us. If, if you've been around for a while, you've seen the progress of, of all the blood, sweat, and tears that's gone into this, even just this space. So uh, we're just really thankful for all that God is doing in our body, through our body, in our hearts, uh, just, to, just to bless us incredibly. So um, let me just let me pray for us. Just ask the Lord to help us as we open up his word. We're going to continue in our series on Romans this morning. <coughs> Father, uh, God, we praise you. God, we thank you for your, your mercy this morning that's new, that you never run out, you never exhaust it. And so we wake up and you have a full supply ready for us when we open our eyes as you have been awake the whole time holding the world together. And so we praise you this morning, God. We just ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would, would help us as we open up your words to us. We believe that these are your words that you've given us to teach us to grow us, to show us your character, to, to help us to know our state before you, to show us your plan of redemption. But God, we need, we need your help to understand it. Uh, you tell us in your word that the, the flesh is no help. It doesn't bring life, that your spirit brings life, that our flesh is no help at all. And so this morning we want life. We want life in you. So help us to do that by your spirit this morning and help me Speak clearly your words to us. Give us all ears to hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. We finished chapter 1. Uh, and it's a journey, right? Romans is it's a journey. It's a, it is a big old honking journey through the, the weeds of Paul's mind, inspired by the Spirit of God dropping these giant bombs on us along the way. Um, so Romans chapter 2, we're going to pick right up there today. But so as I was preparing this, I don't, I don't know if, you, if you're anything like me. All right? I, and I'm kinda, I kind of fit into a particular kind of demographic that some of you probably identify with. Like uh, kind of growing up into this like reformed Christian world in the like mid 2000s, early 2000s through 2010-ish, right in that range, right? If you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you can kind of, that's kind of that ball, that's kind of the era we're talking about here, right? So, so if you were, if you're anything like me around the internet at that point of time, right, and you were anywhere near the reformed Christian world, you were probably at some point scrolling on YouTube one night, searching for sermon jams of John Piper or Matt Chandler or whoever you were listening to at the time, Mark Driscoll, can't say his name anymore, but, and, and if you were, if that was you, if that describes you, or if you've been around the, the reformed YouTube world for very long, there's a probably a pretty good chance at some point you have seen over on the side the title of a video that says something like, most shocking youth message of all time. Have you seen this? Some of you are probably familiar with this, right? The most shocking youth message of all time. And of course, you're like, oh, I got to see this. Like, I got to see what the most shocking youth message of all time is. I can't pass this up. And so you click on it, and you see this guy standing on the stage, right? You see this guy. He's got these high-waisted dockers on with his button-down shirt. And this guy's name is Paul Washer, right? 
You heard this guy named Paul Washer? So this is my first exposure to this guy named Paul Washer. And so I click on this video and I see this guy and he's quick, he like at first he's this very like mild, soft spoken, but very serious person. And he and you could tell that he's like very like concerned as he's like beginning to give this message to this room full of like youth, like this youth event that he's at. And he starts to get into this message and he's he starts to like paint this picture and he's like describing the state of the church, right? The, the state of Christians in America, sort of. And he's and he sort of like gets to this point where he's like building up to this crescendo and he starts like rattling off all these things like, you know, that we got to be we can't be like Britney Spears. We got to be like Jesus. It's kind of like his his crescendo moment. It's, it's a good sermon. I'm not I'm not bragging on the sermon. Right. His passion comes through. But at this certain point of the, the sermon, he like he builds up to this crescendo and you can start you can sort of hear the crowd in the background, like starting to like cheer. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. He's like he's like going back and forth of like, you know, we got to be more like Jesus. We can't be like the world. We can't be like Britney Spears. We got to be like Jesus. And they're like and they're like you can you can sort of hear the room start to get behind him a little bit. And, and this is the this is what made this sort of famous, right? He gets to this point and you could and he starts to hear like starts to hear the crowd like sort of cheering. And he and he gets to this point where he, and he stops and he hears the cheers of the crowd and he and he like pauses and he gets real quiet again and he gets real serious again and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Right. If you've heard you've heard this line before, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And it's like this boom, like this big bomb of like, oh, like realization falls and the crowd gets dead quiet. Like they're like, oh, you can hear a pin drop. It's like five thousand people in this room. So as I'm (laughs) as I'm preparing this sermon, I just couldn't get that line out of my head. Right. So so we we just finished chapter one. And Paul's like going, he's like doing this Paul Washer thing, right? He's like going through this list of like, here's what the unbelieving world is like. And he starts rattling off all these things. And these is what, they have suppressed the truth, and they're this and this and this, and, and God's wrath is upon them. And, and it's almost like Paul, in the back of his mind, can sort of hear like these very religious Jewish people kind of being like, Let's get them, Paul. You're right. The, the world is bad. The world is good. Yeah, and we're the Jews, and we're good. And it's almost like Paul gets to chapter 2, and he's like, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Right? He drops this, like, he, he flips it over on him, right? He flips the script when we get to chapter 2. And, and he switches his focus from drawing attention to the unbelieving world, right? The Gentiles, the Greeks, as he calls them. And he starts, to, he starts to turn his focus towards the unbelieving, in, in this case, probably Jews, right? The people of the, in and around the church or are familiar with the church who are themselves unbelieving. And this is really, infor- this is really important for us to understand as we, as we sort of read through this passage because some of it's pretty difficult if we don't have this sort of context of, of who he's speaking to, who he's addressing Right. We know that he's uh, he's writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, but he but he's sort of like using this rhetorical device to to speak to a set of critics, 
of what he might be saying. We have to notice this shift, this shift of him talking about people outside of the people of God to people who might think that they are a part of the people of God. And in this case, it would probably be more likely that he would be speaking to to Jews who didn't necessarily recognize Jesus as the Messiah. People who are looking to their own sort of heritage. They're looking to their circumcision. They're looking to their even their own behavior, their moralism. And they think that that is enough that's going to keep them from this wrath that he just described in chapter 1. And, and I think it's probably safe to assume that this was, this was likely probably a tactic that he would use often. Because we know that when he, would, when he would sort of show up at a city, the first place that he would probably go would be the synagogue, right? And he would go into the synagogue. Well, who's largely going to be in the synagogue? It's going to be mostly Jews, right? So he's going to be using sort of these, some of these rhetorical devices to try and poke into the hearts of these people who are identifying themselves as being part of the people of God. And he's trying to let them know that, hey, you, there's things that you need to, to see that have happened that you need to recognize about yourself. And it's really important for us to notice this. It's really important for us to pay attention. So we notice even how he changes his language. At the end of chapter 1, in verse 32, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is what Scott talked about all last week. You should go back and listen to it if you didn't hear it. But notice in, in chapter 2, and Paul didn't put the chapters in there, we did later, but in the next sentence, he switches the language, right? He says, therefore you, right? He's switching his focus. Therefore you have no excuse, O oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Chapter 1, he's going after the openly unrighteous. Those who suppress the truth, they want nothing to do with God. They've rejected the idea of God. Or they've rejected the idea of the God of the Bible as he presents himself. But in chapter 2, in chapter 1, he goes after the openly unrighteous, but in chapter 2, he goes after the self-righteous. Those who think that they are good because they don't do those things. See, I don't do that, so I'm good. Or I was born here, so I'm good. Or I had this surgical procedure, so I'm good. See, he's going after here. Another way that we might say it, is that in chapter 1, Paul is describing those who have rejected the general revelation of God. And if you heard our teaching week, we talked a little bit about this, right? This general revelation of God revealing himself 
generally through creation. But in chapter 2, Paul's describing those who have rejected his special revelation, his revelation of himself through his word very specifically, through his law, through his word. Those who look at the law of God and say, yeah, yeah, I think I, think I got that. I think I, I think I, yeah, that's me. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't had any sinful sexual partners. I haven't committed armed robbery. I have done enough to avoid the wrath of God because I am not as bad as those people. So the main argument here is that those who are self-righteous are equally under God's wrath as those who totally reject God and make no attempt at righteousness. Self-righteousness is unrighteousness. Self-righteousness is unrighteousness. And as he's making this argument, he seems to be using this sort of like diatribe type of tool to make his point, right? He's He's sort of having this, almost like this imaginary dialogue with a, with a heckler in the back of the room. So the you here that he's talking about, he's not necessarily talking to the Jewish Christians, right? The, the Roman Christians, per se. He, he's, he's using a, a tool to help deconstruct an argument, a, a pattern of thought that they would likely encounter from people that they would be dealing with or people that he's dealing with in the synagogue, perhaps. So he's, he's, he's addressing not necessarily the Christians, and we'll see, we'll see why, but he's addressing anyone who looks to their own behavior performance as good enough to earn eternal life. And he's poking a hole in this pattern of thought. He's trying to just deconstruct it. We see this kind of tool used in other places in Scripture. We see the prophet Nathan use it with King David. He comes to King David, and he says, he, he paints this picture for him, right? He says, hey, there's this rich man, and there's this poor man. This rich man has a lot of lambs, and this poor man has one lamb. And the rich man steals the poor man's lamb, and he kills it and has a feast with it. He's, talking, he's, he's confronting David for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And he comes to David and he paints this picture for him. And David hears this and he's like, well, yeah, this is wrong. This, this guy has to be dealt with. This is, this is obviously a bad situation. And of course, we know the story. He looks at him and says, that's you. I'm talking about you. <laughs> you are the rich man. And we get Psalm 51, right? And see, this is, this is where this text is probably most commonly misunderstood, this passage of Scripture. Some people would think, take this to mean that, when, and the, especially the first few verses, that Paul is arguing in Romans 2 against judging. This, the, you hear this a lot. Like, well, the Bible says don't judge. Just don't judge. P Paul and God through Paul is not making an argument here against judging. It's not what's, that's not the argument that he's making here. In David's scenario, 
David makes a judgment about the rich man. He makes a correct judgment about the rich man. He says, that's wrong. That guy should, should pay the penalty for what he has done. That is not right. He's making a judgment. The problem isn't that he made a judgment. The problem is that he failed to apply that same level of judgment to himself. That's the problem. So it's not don't judge, blanket, end of sentence. No, the Bible doesn't condemn judging full stop. The Bible does condemn judging that is tainted by pride and self-righteousness. That's the judging that the Bible has a problem with. And this is the argument that Paul is making here. Look what he says in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's not saying, so just stop judging. (laughs) No, he's saying the problem here is not that you're judging what they're doing is wrong. The problem is that you're not applying that same judgment to your own hearts. He's echoing Jesus' words from Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it for you. This is Jesus. He says, judge not that you be not judged. We hear that all the time, right? The Bible says, judge not. And then he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The problem is not noticing necessarily the speck in your brother's eye. Because if your brother has a speck in his eye, it would be loving of you to tell him that. The problem is saying, oh, you're a problem because you have a speck in your eye. Meanwhile, you have an entire two by four sticking out of your head. And you're you're totally blind to it because you're not applying that same level of judgment to yourself. This is what Jesus is saying, and Paul's echoing this. The problem is not looking at other people and noticing their sin or recognizing that is wrong. The problem is the measure that we are using. What is our standard of measurement that we are using in our judgment. Wrongful judgment makes us the standard. In wrong judgment, we make ourselves the standard of measurement. Correct judgment makes God and His holiness the standard. God's perfect holiness is our standard of judgment. When we have that correct standard of judgment, that pulls all of us in. Chapter 1, he's talking about those who believe that there will be no judgment for sin. Chapter 2, he talks about those who believe that there will be a judgment for sin, but that God's measuring stick for righteousness just so happens to be my exact height. They believe that heaven is like a roller coaster at Cedar Point. You ever go to the roller coaster and they pull out that, that big stick with the tape on it? 
We go to the pearly gates, and God pulls out his stick, and he goes, all right, let's see. Everyone that is my level or up, we're in. Everyone that's below my level, you're out. It's the wrong standard of judgment. In verse 6, Paul says this. This is where it starts getting tricky. God will render to each one according to his works. Uh -oh. And there are two outcomes, it says. There are two ways that it can go. God will render to each one according to his works. That's what it says. And there are two outcomes. Verse 7 says the outcome is what? Eternal life. In verse 8, what's the outcome? Wrath and fury. That's it. There's no other outcomes. There's no middle space. There's no half and half. There's no 60-40. It's one or the other. There's eternal life or there's wrath and fury. So what's happening here? Is Paul saying now, hold on, Paul. We have the rest of the Bible now. What are you saying? Are you saying that salvation is based on works? Is that what you're saying? You mean to tell me after all this, in Romans 2, you're going to tell me that salvation is based on works? Is that what he's saying? This is where we need, this is where we need the rest of the scripture, right? We need the rest of the story. We need the whole picture to help us understand what he's saying. What's his point? Well, let's follow, let's follow the, the train of thought here. Bear with me in this train of thought. For one, he's saying that there will be a judgment. There's going to be judgment. God is going to judge all people. It's coming and it's unavoidable. That's what he's saying. And he is, actually is saying that God will be judging us according to our level of righteousness. That's what he's saying. That's how we are going to be judged. According to the level of righteousness that we have. And that that level of righteousness that he's going to judge us by is his perfect holiness, which he has revealed to us through his law. And anyone who practices any of the things mentioned in Romans chapter 1, he says, will not escape the judgment of God. I'm just telling you what it says in the text. These are all just straight out of the text. So let's go through the list from Romans 1. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder. And remember what Jesus said about murder, right? That if you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them. Strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I get anyone? I got, I got hit by a bunch of those. If even one of these applies to you at any point in your life, you are condemned. 
That's what the Bible says. You're condemned. This puts you in the seat of wrath and fury. God is right and just to judge you for your sin. We want him to be right and just, don't we? We want him to, to, to deal with sin. We don't want Hitler's atrocities to never be dealt with. For those to just be looked, overlooked and forgotten, we don't, nobody wants that, right? He is right and just to judge sin, even yours and even mine. And so I think, I think this leaves us with three choices. I think we have three choices to, in order when we hear this. To re- how do we respond to this? At, at least, maybe there's more, but we're going to talk about three today. I think the first choice is that we can hear these words and we can suppress them. We talked about last week in Romans 1. You can say, this is all a bunch of hogwash. It's all hogwash. I don't believe any of it. There is no God. There is no judgment. Or maybe there's a God, but he's not like this. He would never disapprove of what I feel to be true in my heart. So I'm going to create some other God in my own image. But that God that you're talking about, no thank you. That's one option, right? To to suppress the truth. That's Romans 1 option. There's a second option that we can hear these words and we can say, okay, well, it looks like I got my work cut out for me. I got my work cut out for me now. I mean, I'm a good person. Let me be, come on, be realistic. I'm a good person. I always bring my neighbor's trash can up. It sounds like you're saying that I needed to be a little better. I, I'm, I can, okay, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. I won't disagree with you there. I need, probably need to work harder, get myself together a little better. I mean, I'm not nearly as bad as some people I can think of, clearly, right? I mean, come on, those people. But I guess you're right. I could do a little better. I mean, you, you mean you, God's obviously not going to treat me the same as he would treat like Stalin or Jeffrey Dahmer or whoever. He's not, I mean, come on. Okay, okay, okay. I'll give a little more to the church. I'll, I'll serve in the nursery. How about that? I'll do that. See, this is what, this is what I'll call, this is what we'll call lightning theology. I'm just making this up. This isn't a real thing. You're not going to find this in like John Frame's systematic theology. We'll call it lightning theology. You ever hear people joke about this? Somebody makes like a, a crude joke or something, and everybody's like, whoa, get away from him. Like, especially if like you're in a church building. It's like, whoa, watch out, you're going to get struck by lightning. You ever hear people joke like that? This is kind of this, that, this is lightning theology, right? That, that somehow, that that's how God deals with sin. He just strikes people with lightning. Has that ever happened? I don't think that's ever even happened. We've created this picture of like, well, that's how God deals with sin. So if you sin, then God's just going to strike you with lightning and he's going to strike you dead. And I haven't been struck by lightning yet, so I must be doing something right. I mean, I've got lots of money in the bank account. 
Got a nice comfy life. God's been blessing me. I've been, I walked in here today and I get struck by lightning, so must be doing something right. I mean, I can't be that bad, right? If I was that bad, God would strike me down. You see, this is, this is kind of that thinking, right? It's most people just joke about it, but it's, the mindset is kind of real. This person is presuming, like Paul says, these are Paul's words, they're presuming on the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. That's where that comes from. We're presuming on God's kindness. We're presuming on his forbearance, on his patience. They think that God approves of them because, he, because we haven't been struck down by lightning. So that must mean that God is approving of me. Because, I mean, my life's going okay. That's how God works, right? He punishes those who are bad, and he gives good things to those who are good. That's how God does it. So I have a pretty good life, so that must mean I'm doing pretty good. I'll probably get to heaven. We'll see. So this causes us to just sort of live as we have lived. Just kind of keep going about our business. Uninterrupted. This is like Pharisees, right? And what this is, at its core, it looks nice. It looks very churchy at times. But what the Bible would say about this is that this is actually what's called hard-hearted self-righteousness. It's hard-hearted, impenitent, self-righteous heart. The reality is, God is not approving of that at all. God is not approving of you in your own works at all. In fact, it says here that actually what's happening is that God in his kindness is trying to lead you into something. And, and while you go on sinning, it says that you are actually storing up more and more wrath for yourself. So it's actually kind of the opposite. It's not God just, ah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, silly, silly boy. No. It's, it's, it's grave. <laughs> this is a grave thing that God has not struck us down by lightning and his forbearance and his patience with us and his kindness. The more we reject him, the more that we, we, we self, try to self-save ourselves, the more we reject his truth, the more we think that our righteousness is acceptable before him, the more we are actually storing up wrath. Paul's point here is that the, the hard-hearted, self-righteous church person is in just as much danger as the person who rejects God and his truth entirely. And 1 John 1.8 says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is a hard, impenitent heart. And in Romans 2.8, he says that there's this very important phrase. He, he, he gives us this phrase. He says that this type of person does not obey the truth. They don't obey the truth. It's an interesting phrase. 
And says, for the person that does not obey the truth, the outcome will be God's wrath and fury. That's what he says. So what does it mean then? What does obey the truth mean? Well, I would like to submit that truth, that, that the truth that he is speaking about here is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. He's using that word truth to mean the gospel. And he uses he does that similarly in other places, we can see. He calls us to obey the truth of the gospel. One spot. Let's I'll just read one spot. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You could turn there if you want. Verse 9. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Similar language that we're reading here. Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's similar language here that he's using. Did this just go out? Okay, all right. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we just read a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter one, verse 16, where Paul says that there's one thing that is the power to save. What is it? The gospel. He says the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the gospel is the power to save. And he says right here in Second Thessalonians is that they are not saved because they refuse to love and obey and believe the truth. So the truth that he's talking about is the gospel. The truth of the gospel. They do not obey the truth of the gospel that God has revealed to them. Specifically, in his word. He already told us this. So how do we obey the gospel? What is our role in obeying the gospel? Well, as, as Scott read last week, Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. That the gospel is a gift of grace. It is a gift of God's grace to us. It is not earned. It is not merited. It is given by God in his love and plan to give it to his people as he sees fit. <clears throat> so what is our role then in obeying the gospel? Well, Jesus says it very clearly right as he's starting his ministry. <clears throat> the first word out of his mouth is what? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. Believe and repent. Believe that it's true and repent. So hopefully today, as we're pl trying to plow our way through this text, hard. It's a hard text. 
hopefully today we see some things, okay? Hopefully we see that God is going to judge everyone. I hope that's clear because that's what it says. And hopefully we see that God's standard of judgment is his holy perfection. It's in the text. God's standard for giving eternal life, which is the reward for that holy perfection. If you don't hit holy perfection, you do not get eternal life. What is what is that? And hopefully today. We are seeing that none of us. Can actually accomplish this. We cannot accomplish that. We just read the list and it hit every one of us. At least one of those, probably all of them to a certain degree. We also see that God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how nice you are. God is no respecter of persons in that way. And if you hear all of this and you think, well, that seems impossible. That seems impossible. And I think that you would be right to feel that way. Thankfully, Jesus has said that with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. You're right to feel that. If you feel that, you're, you're, you're in the exact right spot. That's what you should feel. You should hear all of that and go, that's impossible. If you hear that and you go, I think I could probably, yeah, seems reasonable. You're, you missed it. But if you hear it and you go, that seems impossible. We go to Jesus and Jesus says, you're right, it is impossible. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The good news of the gospel is that we cannot gain eternal life on our own. But God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums it up very well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He... God, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin. He made him sin. Who knew no sin. Jesus did not sin. He had no sin. God made him to be sin. He placed our sin upon him. So that in him, when we are in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of Andrew, not the righteousness of Scott, the not the righteousness of anyone in this room. That's not the measuring stick. What do we get? He gets our sin. We get the righteousness of God, the very same righteousness that God requires to gain eternal life. That's what we get. Jesus accomplishes the perfect righteousness for us. 
and he died the wrath and fury absorbing death that we deserved. So all of this stuff that Paul is talking about here is unequivocally true. All of it. There's two options, eternal life through God's perfect, holy righteousness as the standard or wrath and fury based upon your own works. That's it. So how do we get that? That's the good news. That's the good news. That's why they call it good news, because it actually is. It's not just news. It's in response to something bad, right? Something that seems impossible something that seems unattainable in our own strength. We go, I can't do that. It's like, you're right. That's it. You get it. Jesus did it. Jesus accomplished it. Not only did he accomplish righteousness for you, he took the punishment for your unrighteousness that you had earned. All of the wrath, all of the fury of God. So Jesus drank the cup, every last drop of God's wrath, God's condemnation. He took it. In our place. And it's so hard to not just keep preaching Romans because it's all the same, right? I'm trying not to do too many spoilers here because it's all there. It's all coming, right? Because of that, we now have the righteousness that is required by God to give eternal life. And so that brings us to our third option, right? We can suppress the truth. That's our first option. We can reject it outright. Our second option is to go, I think I can do that. Both of those are equally condemned in the eyes of God. But our third option is this. We can say, we can hear this, and we can soften our hearts. We can ask the Lord to help us soften our hearts. We can obey the truth. We can respond to the gospel. We can repent. Give up all of our self-salvation projects. And we can turn to Jesus who has the perfect righteousness that we need. This is what repentance is. It's turning from your work to Jesus' work. Turning from your failed attempts at righteousness, which are sin. Turning from your sin to Jesus' perfect righteousness. It's, repentance is, just, is not just stop sinning. That's not repentance. Repentance is stop sinning, yes, but turn to Jesus. You have to go somewhere. You can't just run away from your sin and then just wander about in the desert for 40 years. You have to go somewhere. So, yes, turn from your sin. Repent from your sin. Stop doing the things that are listed in Romans 1. That's, that's what we want. We don't, we're not just trivializing those things. Those are serious things that deserve the wrath of God. So how do we deal with them? We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We repent. We, we look at them and we say, I reject those things and I cling to the righteousness of Jesus. This is acknowledging what he says later in Romans 3, that we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. But God has made a way for us to be made right. For those who believe this, this truth, this gospel, God has placed your sin on Jesus and has placed Jesus' righteousness on you. 
That's his work, not yours. It rests on his capability, not your capability. It rises and falls not by your emotions. It rises and falls based upon his competency to uphold his promise to you. And if you are here today and that is you, praise God for his grace, his gift to reveal that to you. Because he revealed it to you. Even the faith to believe is a gift, it says in Romans 2. Continue to walk in this repentance, in this faith, trusting in Jesus, not in your own righteousness. Paul says later in Galatians, he says, do you think that you came to Jesus by the Spirit and that he's expecting you to perfect yourself by, the, by your flesh? No, no, that's not how it works. You come to him by his Spirit and he perfects us by his Spirit. Keep trusting in Jesus alone as our righteousness. And if you are here today and you have never believed this, if you have never put your faith in Jesus as the only way to eternal life, if you have never repented of your sin and received the forgiveness of God, it is God's kindness and his patience to you that he brought you here. Not because I'm so great. Trust me, that's not the case. People that know me know that's the case. It is God's kindness and patience to bring you here to hear the proclamation of his words, his words, the gospel, the truth. He has spared you. To this point. He has he has been patient with you, He has been so kind to lead you here. And he has given you now today this opportunity to obey the truth. It's available to you. If he is moving in your heart. If, you're, if this is resonating with you, that is him working in you. It's not me. It's him. So today, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. Give up and trust Jesus. Give up and trust Jesus. If that is you, if you are a believer, give up and trust Jesus. In a few moments, we're going to close, and we're going to take communion. Wes is going to come up, and we're going we're to take communion together. And this is what we remember, right? This is, the remem- this is what God tells us. Jesus tells us to remember this. Remember the gospel. Obey the gospel. Obey the truth that we can't do it, and he did it. That we got his righteousness, and he got our sin on the cross. When he broke his body and shed his blood, that's what was happening. And so we remember that today. Don't harden your heart. Come to Jesus. Come, you sinner. Right? What's the line? If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Help us this morning. Help us all to embrace the good news of your gospel. To stop trying to save ourselves and to stop trying to suppress this truth but to give up and to trust you, to trust your word, to trust Jesus as our only way. <laughs> the only way, the only truth, the only life is found only in Jesus. And so we proclaim his name this morning. We exalt Jesus. We raise him up. We proclaim his name. We give him glory and honor. 
that he deserves forever and ever. Amen. Help us, Lord.